Welcome to On the Bobble Podcast, episode 56. I'm your host, Sabasa J. Weidan, and with me is my co-host, Yuki Lee Bender. And today, we have a special guest with us today, and it is the calling Queenstown champion, Darren Ying. Welcome, Darren Ying. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Yep, so Darren Ying, um, I'm from New Zealand, Auckland. Yeah, I've been playing Flesh and Blood for about three years now, I think. The first set I played was Monarch. Um, so yeah, kind of late to the late to the the game, so to speak. But yeah, I've been really enjoying it um, since then. Uh, I play a lot with my son, Archer. He's 10, so um, he's getting really into it. So that's something that, that we enjoy playing together. It's kind of um, quite cool to see uh, some of that competitive spirit coming out in him. But yeah. Um, yeah, nice to nice to meet you, and um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It's uh, really exciting to have you on, and it's it's funny to hear you say that uh, you know like Monarchs late to the game because I guess I guess for New Zealand you had you had the game so early that it would be late to the game. But for for Jay and I, we kind of both got in. I got in just a bit before Monarch, and Jay joined right after Monarch pre-release, and that was sort of like pretty early adopter as far as north america goes so yeah just uh just funny how the game has kind of had different histories in different parts of the world yeah i've got a few stories with that i'm friends with james we used to play magic together a long time ago so i'm trying trying our rage a little bit but um he, <laughs> he i remember he was telling me about flesh and blood before it was flesh and blood he was like hey i've got this game coming out you know it's gonna be really cool you should get into it and i was kind of like ah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll check it out at some stage and then um it's probably one of the biggest regrets is not getting into it right from right from the start but um yeah glad i'm here now yeah well you got into it when you did and you had a huge win in queenstown congratulations again on that do you want to start off there how how was queenstown for you have have you been to queenstown before um are you from there or a different part of new zealand what was the venue like yeah, so I'm from Auckland, which is in the North Island, and Queenstown's in the South Island, so it's a bit far away. But I have visited Queenstown a couple of times. It's um, really unique. It's not like any other part of New Zealand. It's just it's just beautiful. And um, even being a Kiwi, going down there and seeing it as soon as you get off the plane, it's just um, like you're in a different 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 world, really. So it's just yeah. Um, even though I've been there before, it's still breathtaking, and um, it was cool to cool to take Archer, and um, I'm glad we got there uh, a day earlier on the Thursday, so that we could really take in the the sights and sounds. We went jet boating and um, fishing, and did a few other bits, and the weather was weather was awesome. So, yeah, not only was the calling epic, just being in Queenstown is just a, a great experience, and really gets you feeling like a, a, a proper vacation or holiday um, away from work. So um, really special. And I guess probably the other thing for me is that I haven't really been to a pro tour or, or Worlds or anything like that, um, despite wanting to. So I hadn't met a lot of the flesh and blood, I guess, you know, community community people before. Um, so having them come over to New Zealand um, and meet these people for the first time who I've seen a lot online um, was really special, you know, great people, and it really felt that sort of celebrational sort of sort of aspect. Even though that um, they were they were there for the calling, it was great just to have them be there and be part of it. So that that was really special. So a really a really cool weekend and event overall. The heavy hitters set is really exciting to play, and um, yeah, we're obviously going to be talking about it. But I I, I think it's honestly the best limited 
set that's been produced for Flesh and Blood better than um, Welcome to Wraith. So, yeah, I, I really couldn't um, ask for a better weekend, really. It's just, um, yeah, awesome. Sorry, is it summer weather in in Queenstown or in <laughs> Australia right now, right? Yeah, that's the crazy Southern Hemisphere thing. Yeah, so our Christmases, yeah, they're really hot at summer. So we have, for Christmas, we go to the beach and have barbecues, whereas I think in the States it's um, a bit colder. Yeah, we we had like a heavy snow day, at least in Vancouver, like last week. So it snowed really, ha- <laughs> it snowed really hard here in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go visit one day. Yeah, Canada's definitely um, on the bucket list. Yeah, Queenstown looked really incredible, as you said. Um, I had a few friends that went, and I just saw on social media too everybody posting pictures, and it looked it looked like a really special event. I I really wanted to make it. I really wanted to make it out, and I just couldn't quite make it work with everything that's going on in my personal life right now. But um, you know, in the future. But I, I definitely was like looking at the photos and everything. It's like, oh, everyone's having such a good time. I wish I was there. So a bit envious of you getting to play such an awesome event. But uh, sounds like a lot of fun. So. That means because you won the calling, you have a PTI now. Are you planning on using it to attend Worlds next or Pro Tour next? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just narrowly missed out um, in the calling Auckland last year playing the Battle Hardened um, coming third. So I missed out on the PTI and that was something that haunted me. So I'm glad I've, I've got the chance now and I have won. So the plan is um, I've, I've got some friends yeah, just shout out to Jonathan and Dave who have played games with for a long time. They were kind of my, my team for this event. And Sam and Gary as well, who are Auckland sort of fab players who I play a lot of um, limited with and, and kind of bounce some ideas off. But I think the plan would be to <laughs> try and get a group of us to get some PTIs, Bog, uh, Big Bro Steel win, um, and, and probably have a few of us go over at the same time. But I think I think Worlds would definitely be something that yeah, I'd be keen to check out, but um, yeah, we'll just see how the uh, the schedules align, I think. Yeah, hopefully hopefully I qualify for World's Turn. Maybe we can see each other then. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely keen to meet yeah. up. Awesome. So then this episode, we'll be talking about the core mechanics and classes in Heavy Hitters. And we'll be asking Darren on his insights on having played with the set and winning the calling. And how many drafts did you get to do at the calling, actually? Was it three drafts or was it two drafts? Yeah, unfortunately, due to the number, it was just under the the cap for having two drafts. So day one was eight rounds of sealed, and then day two was a single draft and then a cut to top eight. So it's a little bit odd just because of the numbers. I think we were just a few players short of having to do two drafts on day two. I mean, I think that worked out for me personally because being, I guess, from a a bit of a, a smaller team and probably probably wanting to just capitalize on the fact that I went 7-1 in the sealed on the first day, probably just trying to minimize the amount of drafts that um, we were doing for day two before the cut was was kind of perfect for me. Um, and that was kind of shine because I went 1-2 in the draft and just bubbled in on eighth. So yeah, that, that was interesting. But basically, I managed to do a world premiere year, which is a sealed pool. This was the day before the calling. And then they did a couple of other sort of seals that night. And I think I only did one before going to dinner. And then there was the day one of the calling, which was a sealed pool. And then that night, because I made day two, I did an on-demand draft, which was the first draft 
I'd ever done, obviously, of that set. And then just went straight into the day two with one draft under my belt. But everyone was in the same boat. And I think it was a great equaliser. So there's a lot of people that are you know, really great at flesh and blood. But I think the set being so new and people actually having to play it for the first time is kind of a great, great equaliser in that field. So, um, yeah, not a not a, a whole bunch of draft <laughs> experience before heading into day two. But, um, yeah, that, that, I think... Um, that that was useful for me it's kind of hard to get more than one draft in before on the on an event that happens before the pre-release before the set comes out on the weekend of all of the cars getting spoiled so honestly an insane man i I wish i went i went to a bit of a fun experience yeah it was really cool so you played we saw your top eight um of course where you won with kasai um what about in your first draft on day two and your sealed pool was was that also on kasai did you play a different hero yeah i'd be keen to hear your thoughts on this but um i basically played kasai all day it was in the sealed pool and in the first draft and in the top eight yeah i guess i th- i think and i was talking to another friend nish on on this and for the people that did well and made it into day two um from their sealed pools i think people would naturally gravitate to playing the same class and hero that they did well and sealed on in the draft just because of that lack of experience and people not really being able to probably get a lot of gameplay in on those other heroes they're probably just going to revert to um, what they had most experience with and I think um, there's some information posted on the site just talking about the stats that support that theory and I, I think that does come through quite strongly so um, yeah for me it was uh, Kasai through right throughout so i think that probably um as we talk about this set probably need to be mindful of that i've got probably a bit of a yet yeah, more more bias or more experience with the kasai hero and how that plays out here i have my teammates play quite a bit of um, guardian and brute as well so you know we we talked about that a little bit and i've gathered uh some information around how i think those heroes play out as well um but yeah i mean it was it was kasai right the way through for me yeah, and I, I, it, it was, it was, it was good. I think in the deck building, we can talk about this a little bit later. I did have quite a a difficult choice to make because I think there was a strong case to play KO as well, but there were just one or two cards extra that were three blocks for Kasai that I thought just slightly pushed it over the edge, and so yeah, I ended up going X one with Kasai, and so yeah, I'm pleased with that decision. I guess uh, that's a question that I had was, uh, how many cards did you play in your sealed pool? I played about between 33 and 35, depending on the matchup. Mm. So one of the things that I think people will find is that it's it's quite different to Bright Lights. The, the format, there's got a lot of two blocks in it. Um, it's quite an aggressive format. There's a, there's a lot of trading going on. So you do have quite meaningful deck building decisions about how much um, filler or how many two blocks you can get away with in your deck. Yeah, I I tried to keep it lean uh, as much as I could, but I, I felt going to 33 or 34 was also a little bit of a hedge, just trying to maybe get an edge on somebody that was trying to go, go completely lean. In general, play patterns in the sealed, um, the games often didn't 
go right to fatigue, right to the end. The format's fairly aggressive where people can be swinging for 14 or 15 in a turn quite frequently. You do, you do need to be mindful of that. I think they've got the balance quite right where um, fatigue does matter, um, but it's not, it's not really the only thing. So there were some games, particularly Guardian on Guardian, that did come down to the last cards in deck generally speaking and sealed it was it was too aggressive for that okay um i guess we can move on to the actual sealed format more you mentioned that there were some pretty big turns that could come out of some of the decks and that they could hit for you know like 15 damage sometimes in general did you find that hmm, like did you find decks are playing like a lot of like two card hands and then setting up these bigger plays are you like trying to play these big hands and getting to low life totals like really quickly like how is the format kind of like playing out in that way? Because I feel like, you know, like if I think back to like Tales of Aria Sealed, like Briar is often trying to play like four or five card hands for the early parts of the game until we kind of get to like the end. Is is that kind of how this plays out as well? Or is it a, is it a little bit different? Yeah, my, my take on it is that a lot of those turn cycles will revolve around um, the agility tokens. So generally speaking, I think decks are, primed to try and make use of a single blue in a given turn and so there's a plethora of three for sevens um two for sixes that type of thing in the set and so it's very common for people to block with two cards and present seven back off a two card hand the thing that is really the difference for that is generally the spike turns are the heroes that you can get access to agility and so they'll they'll have a setup and then preserve a four card hand and, and come back for for 14. I guess the, the thing that stands out is the heroes that have access to agility tokens. They they tend to be able to produce them quite consistently. And so even though they're swinging for 14 on a turn, as part of that, they're usually playing a buff and getting another agility token so that even though your, your, your opponent can full block, four card block, still leak some damage, you've still got tempo and you've still got another big turn for the following. So... Uh, um, yeah, particularly with KO, um, that seems to be um, something that 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 is a very real proposition, where they just continue to you know be be hyper aggressive turn on turn. Yeah, it's kind of a, a maneuvering around to try and leak um, as little damage as possible um, for you to steal tempo back by trying to have a big turn yourself, which is either a buffed single um, large attack or, or two large attacks through an, through an agility. I guess we can talk a little bit more about the tokens then. Um, what do you think? You think the agility token is the best token out of the three tokens we can make, like the might, vigor, or agility? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. There's obviously synergies within each of the heroes that you know are better with a particular type of token. So, for example, the guardian with a might token um, gets on-hit benefits for some of their cards, such as um, Concuss, which makes you discard a card from your hand if you, if you get hit by it, or the Command card, which destroys Arsenal if it's got power greater than its base. But generally speaking, my evaluation is that Agility is the best um, token of, of, of them all. Um, it does have some downsides in that multiple Agility tokens don't really do anything, but in terms of in terms of a single token, it's often quite backbreaking and results in 14 damage turns, or even 
off an agility token it's not ideal but in kasai for example you could um, block with most of your hand and just keep a yellow or a blue and still come back for for four 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 or six so um yeah i mean i i definitely think agility is the best token by by a decent amount yeah that's fair it's fair just like being able to produce like 14 damage turns kind of seems kind of insane because at first glance like it doesn't seem like you can actually come in for more than like six or seven damage in this set without the agility token yeah that's right i think the general sort of play patterns that i felt work best i was trying to build decks that just operated off a single blue so as many of the three for sevens as you could but um trying to balance that with um and warrior especially um and brute has access to this as well a lot of the one cost pumps for three um and then you can just um within your pool look for some of the the, the two the two cost attacks as well so um off the single blue you could either come in for three for seven or for um uh, a two cost pumped by um a one cost for for nine say so um yeah that's I, I guess probably sort of the default sort of build that I was trying to go for for a lot of my decks. It kind of reminds me a lot of Icelander in some ways, where you're just trying to get efficiency out of that that single that single blue, and yeah, go go from there. It's quite powerful that strategy, and that you can arsenal um, the three for seven, or you can arsenal the the one cost buff, and just navigate the turns accordingly. Um, just matching up the the resources to match and then that that flexibility where if you try and make sure that your deck's just not three for sevens and it has those buffs as well it means that if there's an off turn by your opponent you can you can obviously buff um the three cost as well so it's just that efficiency to ensure that you're using as many of your cards uh and resources every turn as possible one other thing that i had to question about for this format is how how good do you think the gold tokens are in this set and like how often did you see your opponent make them or if you made them yourself yeah i think i think that's a tricky one the gold is probably um the hardest to figure out of of each of the tokens but i think the there are some cards that are the payoffs for that and so there's a cycle of cards that if you've drawn a card for the turn you get a benefit and so they're, they're shared between um each of the the classes they're not class specific so to speak so they obviously synergize with it i think what you often saw with the gold is that um people would dig for specific cards so in game win conditions maybe an overpower card um or a specific defense react or trying to cycle um resources so commonly it's it's quite a tempo oriented format where if you draw four reds it can be quite it's quite fatal or detrimental so trying to turn two reds into a blue off a gold or a yellow into a blue was something that was was um quite useful in some spots as well you could try and if you drew drawn say three blues in your hand try and turn a blue into a red but i guess where where that shines is in kasai i think she's got a bit of an edge because she gets an inherent benefit the card draw as well so um yeah the gold one is a, is a little bit tricky um each of the heroes use that in a, in, a, in a slightly different way but i would say it's it's probably best in kasai um and if you heard a specific card with it like um golden sun or something like that that can really make use of it 
Yeah, that's fair. Maybe it might be more of like a draft mechanic that we can draft around. It's kind of a little bit too early to say exactly, but I guess in sealed, definitely a little bit less powerful, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like a nice to have where it's just a bit of an insurance policy where um, if you had one or two of them out, you could kind of dig and, and just improve or craft your hand um, a bit better. So it didn't feel overpowered or anything like that. It was just a, a resource that sit there for when the time was right. So that was that was useful. I guess the one thing is um, <laughs> in line with heavy hitters, there's a lot of gambling and wagering, wagering this. There's a bit of a gamble um, sort of element where you can you can pop the gold and, and just try to improve your hand. I, I guess the best use of it might be if you see a clash and you get information off that that reveals the top card of your deck. You can turn the gold into the card that you know that's on top of your deck. So in one of the matches I played, yeah, my opponent... My opponent did that, just basically turned a, a yellow into um, a powerful attack. So that's probably quite a strong use case for it. Yeah, I didn't even realize that's actually kind of cool that you can turn... Yeah, because of the clash mechanic, the clash mechanic after you reveal, it goes back to the top of your deck, right? So then you can see what you're going to draw into with your gold. I guess yep. your opponent has to be clashing then? Yeah, so you, well... Um, you can clash when you block. So you play a block, you clash, you reveal, and then going into your turn, you can make a, make a determination if the top card of your deck's better than the gold. Oh, uh, I see. That's kind of gross. Yeah, so it kind of feels like then a lot of it, like the gold are like, everybody can use gold to, to fix their hands and filter and whatnot, but it seems like maybe the biggest thing is for, for Victor specifically, since he gets the card draw when he makes a gold, obviously very powerful, and then he's also the deck that seems to want to be clashing, which has even more inherent synergy with gold. So perhaps the gold is like largely a Victor mechanic, but then still ones that other can other heroes can make, of it, make use of. Yeah, definitely. One thing to bear in mind with Victor is, um, I think the wording on him is, it has to be when you create a gold off an effect that um, he controls. So mm -hmm. if you happen to clash or produce or a, a wager a gold from an attack that, that, that you control and your opponent is Victor, if they win the gold off that, they're not going to get the benefit. Oh, yes, yes, that, that does make sense. So if, if your card generates gold for them and they're Victor, they don't draw a card. Correct. So you can like money where a mouth where your mouth is and not worry about them like blocking it out and drawing a card. Okay. Yeah, that seems actually like a thing that people might do on the pre-release day, where like, oh, my card gonna make gold, so let's not play against Victor. But that's not true. You can just still play it, and if they make the gold off it, they don't actually get any benefits or not some crazy benefits off it, like draw a card. Okay. Uh, I guess you wanna move on and talk about the actual classes then. Let's talk about the classes specifically in Sealed because the pre-release is coming up. Do we want to just jump right into Guardian because we're on the topic of Victor already? I guess, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Let's talk about Guardian first. So we have Betsy and Victor. I guess you want to talk about Victor first or do you want to talk about the Guardian mechanic as a whole? Yeah, I, I guess um probably just wanted to start a little bit with with my thoughts on the heroes where in Sealed there seems to be a standout in each of the classes. We can cut into each of the specific classes as well, but um, Kasai for Warrior, Ko for, for Brute, and, and Betsy for Guardian do seem to be significantly more intuitive to play um, and get access to um, the right cards in a sealed pool. 
within within a sealed um, format. The other heroes are, I guess, considered secondary, and this was the common consensus from a lot of people that I spoke to over the weekend, that you needed a very good reason to be playing um, the other heroes outside of those three, and and usually that was due to a specialization, a really powerful bomb, majestic, or a piece of equipment, rather than a card pool that was really drawing into that archetype. So that might be something that comes out more strongly in draft, but for sealed, it was it was quite sort of difficult to find the rationale to play those those counterpart um, heroes within class. Um, but yeah, I guess Guardian specifically, um, Betsy was definitely um, the, the sort of premier choice for people um, in the sealed format. Just having the ability to make use of the extra um, resources is quite powerful. So probably Guardian is probably the hero that I had the least amount of experience with in playing with it. But from my observations, the things that I, I, I garnered from speaking to other people was that it was a class that was probably harder to figure out than the others. It played less intuitively, and I think um, some of the main reasons for that is some of the attack play patterns where the, the, a lot of the attacks are costed at 4 and 5, and so you were priced into taking extra damage and coming back with an attack that wasn't necessarily as efficient off that whole sort of discussion we had in terms of the one one blue. I guess where it, it starts to... Uh, make up for that a little bit is the built-in hero power from Betsy, which is the, the, the when you wager, you can pay two and give it overpower and plus one. Yeah, it's still, even to me, that seems like a good finisher, but it didn't feel like it was quite worth the two resources um, when trying to race other people for that. And so it, it was quite different to like a Bravo, where Bravo has these, you know, really debilitating um, crush effects, and that would you know, help you uh, reduce the swing back. Betsy just giving plus one and overpower. It was kind of more like a meh, almost whatever. I guess the the caveat to that would be um, some of those concuss and command cards. But in general, yeah, I, I think Guardian is probably a bit more difficult to figure out than the others. And I think if I had to you know, give a piece of advice for the pre-releases that it, Guardian is going to, play a bit more betsy specifically is going to play uh, a bit more of a setup game so there's a cycle of cards which are bigger than big and which are the auras that give a buff to an attack on the start of turn and i think quite probably the most effective way to play betsy is to get out one of those buffs and then and then you know produce a a, a massive attack on the following turn so it's it's probably less straightforward in terms of trading and trying to set up a bit more than the other heroes i think we've seen in like older sets too like the cards like bigger than big and big bop and stuff like that aren't actually that strong in those formats either so i'd assume that it's going to be the same kind of thing in this format where like that's just not a winning strategy to be doing right because like pitching a blue to play a big bop or a bigger than uh bigger than big is only giving like even for the red one is only giving five power so it's like not gonna be it's not efficient if that makes sense it's not the yeah. uh yeah. two card six if you that you need really yeah my my guess would be like what kind of strikes me about guardian and maybe like if i had to guess what the class is trying to do i think you might want to have like a handful of those auras and arsenal it 
and then wait for an wait for an opportunity where your opponent doesn't have an agility token and they might have trouble converting your hand and then playing a big bop and hoping you can strand them with cards and then you know block out their one big attack and come back for 11 or whatever with an on hit and then kind of like get tempo that way so i kind of think that like lining up your aura with their lack of agility is like probably going to be important or, or if you start turn zero and you get the aura i think there was like a game on camera where nick butcher started with a big bop and then just blocked three cards swung 11 and it was like pretty pretty convincing but but yeah i think you have to pick your spots it seems like yeah i agree i think that's spot on um yeah it's it's just about dodging that agility set up from your opponent and finding a space to do it so that's where the patience comes in and that's where i think if you're trying to go in with a mindset of just trading your four for eight for their, you know, three for sevens and, you know, sometimes two of them in a turn. It's not a it's not a winning strategy. It's gonna be an interesting puzzle to figure out, but I think that's kind of where where Betsy's at. Yeah, I think one note that I have for the pre release is unlike older sets, in this set there's just a lot of class two blocks for Guardians. So all of the auras block for two in this set. A significant amount of your pool is gonna be two blocks, even if you're just looking at your Guardian card. So in older mm-hmm. sets, like everything Guardian just blocked for three, basically. In this set, that's just not the case. Um, so you're not going to be able to do the typical Guardian strategy of like blocking for nine, attacking for four. Also, because High Riser doesn't attack for four on its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think if you get the Mill Hammer, does start to become um, more possible. But I think in a sealed pool, realistically, getting um, 40 playables, for example, try and fatigue your opponent and getting the density of the three blocks, it's possible, but it's extremely rare. Yeah, I think it would be a hard strategy to just assume that you can do on any average card pool. I guess it's, it, it exists and it's in the format, but it's it's probably a lot lot harder to set up. In general, the weapon swings felt they were more just an accompaniment, but the main forces, um, the main um, form of attacks that heroes would be playing would be attack cards. And so, yeah, the weapons were just, just a bit of a backup. Yeah, I guess that the, the one weapon, the mill hammer, just kind of stands out a little bit as being um, probably the best towards that fatigue strategy. And um, Nick Butcher um, in the top eight, he'd, he'd drafted a deck that played quite close to that game plan with a lot of block, four, block fours as well. It was quite effective. Um, so it is possible, but I guess for sealed specifically, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be quite um, demanding, and a lot of the pools just won't be able to support that. Do you want to move on to a different class then? Talk about brute next. My thoughts on this is Ko is the superior brute and sealed by quite a significant amount. I guess the difference is the the one arm slot is not really a huge decrement. I'm not saying there are there are not turns we can go double claw, but generally speaking, as we just kind of talked about, weapon swings are probably just more of a filler. They're not really a main source of of damage in this format. One thing I just want to um, say before you continue, actually, is at the calling we actually see what like the players played for the sealed portion, and just for the brutes, there were 78 KOs and there were nine Reinhards, almost like a 10 to one, right, or like a nine to one. It's it's significant amount of people played KO over Reinhardt, and I think it's um that's kind of telling. And if my graph here is correct, it looks like 0% of the Reinhardt's day twoed that played Reinhardt, so... For, for pre-release, pretty safe to say you probably shouldn't be Reinhardt. Having all the sixes just seems like very obviously 
advantageous in sealed where you don't really get to tailor your deck and like wind up with enough six power density like this is often the case yeah ko just like having your fives be effectively sixes just seems so much more consistent and easy to come together absolutely that's the key thing um so for sealed um the ability to turn all your fives into sixes there's just not enough to support that for Rhinar. and then you could talk about intimidate um uh in the raw probably not being the best keyword um unless you have um sort of a tipping point um of intimidate where you can um, consistently do that to push damage so ko's abilities are, are definitely much more suited for being relevant in, in sealed games the ability to have um, clashes be empowered as well is huge and um, something that you'll learn quite quickly when you play ko is the might tokens add up and they add up quite quickly yeah it's really really lots of play in ko when you're able to for example discard an agile wind up which is the seven power at red um, discard at instant to make an agility token with chaos ability if it's in your turn you'll also create the might so you're getting you're getting two tokens off a single single buff is quite quite cool and one of the cool tricks that you can do with that is with your claws you can attack and then discard the agile wind up at instant speed um, to give the claws go again just cool little things like that you kind of mentioned already at the start that agilities are really important and brute is able to make agilities their tokens are um, agilities and mites are there any agility makers that are especially like ones to look out for like you mentioned the windups are there any other ones that you're like really looking for or really like stood out for you, for you when you were playing against chaos any any card that has the word agility on it is going to be powerful i think the best ones are the ones that guaranteed agility rather than conditional um but even the conditional ones are, are really are really good as well i think probably the power cards that would push you towards brute and, and ko would be some of the the zero blocks so bear fangs and wild ride they're both extremely powerful they both hit almost you know, you know quite quite frequently due to his ability to give plus one power they are the difference makers that probably mean that ko probably has the best output out of all of the heroes in the game and so you do just have to manage the fact that they're non-blocks yeah that they're, they're cards that actively uh, make me want to play ko yeah anything with agility is good yeah that that makes a ton of sense i've been messing around with ko and cc actually and um the wild ride claw into any two cost follow-up is off two blues is so so strong it's just so much damage every every single time so definitely something to look out for for people trying to put together ko is like two costs are really good the go again that gives you the discard for your claw is really good and i think that ko has like some pretty impressive output i've been really impressed even in cc but i think a lot of it translates to to sealed as well yeah there are a lot of stories from people that were recounting how their round went and you know, they'd, they'd just say, oh, they played a KO and it was just relentless. It's just two attacks every turn. Um, they're just able to make an agility every turn and just retain tempo. So, yeah, it, it, it's, KO is very powerful. That's super fair. Yeah, KO, the one the one weapon zone clause doesn't, doesn't even feel that much of a downside, right? Because, like, it's so hard to swing two manable claws anyways. And there's no Blood Rush Bellows in this format. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it, it, I, it, it's just not relevant and i think reiner you know there's not a lot of intimidate keyword in there and you, you're just not going to get the sixes you're not going to get the six densities to be able to um turn that on enough there's a few trap cards in the format that get bonuses um if you've intimidated but 
for me it just doesn't come up enough so yeah i'm not surprised to hear that the rhino struggled i'm more excited for reinhardt for maybe like draft where um you know once we figure out how to set up reinhardt's like otk turns i think that's that's when reinhardt is going to shine over ko where ko is just going to be more consistent throughout the format yeah i think that's fair then uh let's talk about the hero you played the warrior hero um and you you said you played kasai you didn't like who is the other hero olympia yeah olympia i think just kind of chatting to a few people a lot of people didn't didn't feel olympia was very easy to figure out you know to me they both have a decent amount of gold generation um between them both kasai and olympia and so it comes down to the payoffs and the payoff cards for that are shared between both the warrior classes so i I didn't really see a good reason to be playing Olympia over Kasai, who just seemed to be a bit more well-rounded. I guess, again, the only thing that strikes me as a good reason to play Olympia would be the specializations. So there's some good armor. There's a there's a, there's a a card, I think it's a blue block three, um, that's an attack react for Olympia. Those would be reasons to, to probably play Olympia over Kasai. But yeah, it certainly wouldn't be surprised if yeah most other people could have came to the same conclusion kasai was definitely yeah a lot more compelling yeah i have a question about kasai is um how often did you get to use her hero ability the banish two reds and the yellow to on hit make a gold token like do you think that ability was quite impactful or uh i think it comes up um at least probably once per game sometimes even you know three three times in a game so there are some games that can go long the thing to note with that is that it's any of the swords that hit. So if you activate it at the start of your turn um, and you swing with both of your weapons, only one of them needs to have hit to create to create the gold. Yeah, I think it's a, just a good little bonus for free. I don't think it necessarily um, factors into deck building decisions um, within sealed or anything like that. You're basically just going to play your entire pool almost anyways. So yeah, I think that that does come up a lot. I happen to get the Majestic in one of the um pools i think it was on the the premiere which is the you can turn gold into the cell swords raise an army i think it <laughs> it seemed like it was going to be really powerful but it actually was quite depressing at how hard it was to actually get off the creating the gold is you know no no easy feat and then being able to have the guard make the cell sword but the cell swords only actually can get go again if you've attacked with a weapon so you need to have an agility token to swing with a weapon, then swing with a cell sword. It was, yeah, it's definitely more of a constructed card. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. There was actually a game on coverage of Kasai where they pitched an uh, early raise an army to try and, like, second cycle play that against a controlly guardian deck, and it just sort of... It just fell really flat. It was like, by the time they got the two cell swords, it was just kind of too late like it was too hard to give the the weapon go again and really get the payoff for it so definitely um yeah it didn't look too impressive in that game and it's interesting to hear that you had the same experience uh playing it yeah yeah so it's a trap it's a big trap card <laughs> still block i mean it's three, a block three yeah yeah and it's not an attack which matters because True. warriors have some if you've blocked with attack cards so i don't know and their weapons are also like that it's a good point actually yeah that that is so relevant any card that's not an attack action particularly ones that block for three are very powerful so when sideboarding if you do have the choice you might want to swap out um some attack actions for non-attack action uh, sorry attack reactions or, or things that um can block sabers a bit better 
Yeah, so I mean, Warrior, for me, I, f- I favour probably Warrior and Brute and Sealed. And the main thing being that they are classes that have um, more readily access to agility. And we've talked about the strength of that. Both of them have similar sort of play styles in that you can have the three for sevens, but you can also have the, the um, one cost buffs into a solid two, two cost. A lot of those buffs create agility tokens as well. So you, you can just kind of get momentum and keep it quite quite easily through the agility. I personally felt that that Warrior was a, a good choice for that and probably had more well-rounded defensive capabilities than Brute, given that there's some non-blocks in, in the Brute class. I, I just found Warrior to um, kind of resonate quite strongly with how I like to approach the game. So that makes a ton of sense. You've yeah, we've we've talked about how strong the agilities are and how important they are, and and I noticed that a lot of the agility cards are um, actually hybrid warrior brutes. So I, I foresee some people kind of like winding up in a spot where they have a lot of these hybrid uh, warrior brute cards that make agilities, and they're trying to decide between either Ko or Kasai. Uh, you mentioned Ko had some real key cards like wild rides and the bear fangs what kind of cards are you looking for that make you go yeah this is a warrior pool rather than a rather than a brute pool yeah i think that's the 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 difficult part i think the blocking again is something that can be the difference and so when i had the um, the choice between um, brute and warrior i just literally added up the amount of three blocks um and there were two more in the warrior pool so i ended up playing it i mean that's just one metric um obviously there's a lot of other things that you can be looking at but um yeah, I, I, I think Warrior in general, there's a large benefit to be playing where a lot of the games come down to a end game state where both players are on low life and having attack reactions is a significant advantage in that game state where you create lose-lose situations for um, your opponent. So um, even if they know or suspect that you have a attack react and they're on two life, they can't really enter into an overblocking situation because they just become fatigued. So um, I think Warrior has a significant advantage um, in in those types of game states. Comes up, and probably the other thing worth mentioning is that Overpower is a decent finisher for a lot of the classes in this format. It's quite prevalent, and so having attack reactions is something else that bolsters your defensive capabilities against Overpower. And that, that's just the point of difference um, between Warrior and Brute in this format. Yeah, no, that's that's actually kind of huge because there's a lot of attack reactions in, in the Warrior class, actually, that I'm looking at it right now that the Warrior class gets access to that Brute doesn't. So, yeah, against the Guardians, it seems like Warrior seems significantly better, actually, against Betsy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just for the record, in the final game where Koi... Shout out to Koi. Um, he played the Golden Sun. I had the Rally of the Rear Guard, but I also had the card that I pitched the Rally of the Rear Guard was um, an Attack React. So I had the options of a three block and um, the two block to block the overpower, but I just chose Rally that let me keep two three blocks in the hand. Yeah, it, Rally was great, but it was kind of an either or. But yeah, I mean, um, being able to fend off overpower more readily which is quite a common way to end a game i think is is definitely an advantage of warrior probably probably one thing just to to mention as well is um the downside to warrior i guess would be clash mechanic so it's probably the weakest out of all of them 
to win clashes due to the amount of attack reactions that you've got in your deck. But that's not to say that you're dead in the water. You're trying to pack a lot of seven powers in your deck as well, so you can get lucky and, and hit some off the top like I did. It's probably one of the, the downsides of Warrior. Uh, yeah, so let's start talking about the mechanics in more specifically. So, yeah, let's start with the wager mechanic. How important do you think the wager mechanic was, like, to win or to lose it? Yeah, wagering's really cool. Like, I think the guys have done an awesome job with this set. It's really, really fun to play and could almost write um, a bit of a thesis on when to wager and when to not, because I'm sure there's a lot of lot of different views and there's a lot of different variables in a particular situation that goes into the decision making. But I guess to simplify things and just talk about it at a macro level, you generally want to wager when you want to incentivize your opponent to block out. And so, you know, that's probably your starting point, And then you go from there. I guess at a micro level, um, there's a whole bunch of other things that you'll need to factor into the thinking, like how much the attack is, if it's for seven, if it's for a break point, how much armor that they have and what they stand to gain from it and what you stand to gain from it. And all of these little things kind of go into the melting pot of the decision making. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, but I guess... What I found is that my strategy was earlier on in the game, when we're both at higher life totals, I think wagering in general for a seven-point attack was probably not the best thing to do, particularly if your opponent has lots of the blade break armor for one, because my thought process was you're giving your opponent agency to decide of all of those melting pot of variables um, whether it's more beneficial for them um, to block out, and it's quite an easy, you know, seven block, two block, two cards, and, and a piece of armor to get the token or not. So it's quite risky to do so when they have all of those resources available. And then, kind of inversely, I guess towards the end of the game, when they're on low life, one or two, your opponent is incentivized to block out anyways. So wagering at that point in time seems risky. Um, particularly if it's something like agility or vigor, which can really um, turn a one-card hand from them into um, a decent swing back. So I guess where I found it most interesting was the midpoints of the game, where you're both at sort of that 10-11 sort of life point total, a lot of your armor's gone, and you're really trying to create a difficult spot for your opponent where it's taking the agency away from them for an easy an easy block. So if they have no blade break and you're presenting seven, it's a very meaningful decision for them whether to block out and gain that or not. Other other things, obviously, like if they have an agility token, that means generally you're quite concerned about the swing back. So wagering at that point in time to try and incentivize them to block to just operate off like a two-card hand is probably a good spot. Wagering an agility when they have an agility is free because if they win, they can't do anything with that second agility token anyways yeah it's really cool it's a really fun f- mechanic to play around it's it would be kind of almost impossible to create a heuristic that's a set in this situation you you wager and you or you don't it's a lot of things that that kind of go into that evaluation so yeah i think it's probably just a feel thing so people just trying it out for themselves and seeing what works for them is is probably the way to go. Yeah, no, that's this mechanic is the most interesting mechanic for me. Is like you really get to have the initiative to ask your opponent to block the card out or to not block the card, or you have the option to give a card an on hit is kind of hit, kind of sweet in the set. 
Oh, sorry, I was just going to add um, one thing. Probably the sweet spot is if you manage to get a buffed wager attack where the number is so huge, like it's 11 or 13 or something like that, and they just simply can't block it out anyways, well, then, then that's obviously free and a bit of a no-brainer. But yeah, where it's most interesting, where it's where you create those really meaningful, crunchy decisions for them. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I've played with wager a little bit in CC, and I so many of the things that you said really resonate with me. I think that like another good way to think about it is remember all the tokens go away at the start of turn no matter what. So some there's certain spots where like the agility tokens, especially into like a guardian, you might know can't be useful. Like if, if your opponent doesn't have the equipment like you were talking about and you're presenting a seven, if they don't have like a four block in hand, which there aren't that many of them, then you know if they give you three cards, like a guardian can't make use of that agility token because their weapon costs three, whereas like a warrior can swing two sabers. Um, and, and brute's sort of like a similar thing. If brute is on one card, like all they can do is swing their claw um, or, or arsenal or, or play. If it's a zero cost card, they can play their zero cost card, but they're never going to use that agility. So I found thinking about like, how can my opponent best use this card to be like a useful lens or best use this this token that I'm giving them if, if they block it out? to be a really useful lens for evaluating wager yeah unlike um quicken tokens agility tokens have to pop same for the might and the vigor token like they just have to pop at the beginning of the turn and they have to make use of it at that turn and if they can't the wager was free right so it's like it's also another another back and forth with your opponent of like if if they block with three cards can they even actually use the vigor token or even the might token it's 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 a kind of a sick mini game that you can play with your opponent. Warrior has access to, I think they're rare, but they have access to attack reacts that um, trigger if you've wagered or not. So there's another mini mind game that you can play with Warrior, which is wagering bluff the zero cost attack react. So often when you're against opponent um, wagering and having the attack react as a, as a warrior is a huge advantage. So you can kind of um, play a lot of mind games with that where if they want to block for seven exactly, you can obviously come over the top relatively easily if you've got the resources and, and cards remaining. But specifically, there's a zero-cost cycle um, in Warrior that is, if you've wagered, you can give it plus three. So that's something to be mindful of as well. So even you can even be tricky with that, where even if they're on one life, you can come in and just say that the attack is wagered regardless, which typically is meaningful because the you know the on hit means death anyways. But because you've wagered, you're kind of bluffing the fact that you have this zero cost. I mean, and they're probably at that stage of the game. It's difficult to play around that sort of thing anyways, but just, just interesting to note. Yeah, honestly, there'll be a sick spot where you wager a card that you know is going to be super beneficial for your opponent, so you try and get them to overblock for three more. That would be a sweet thing against like a really strong player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you'd be really doing it i think yeah that's that's a good spot isn't it uh i'll think about it i'll use it against players that seem to be thinking a lot where if they know i'm good and then if they know they're good then uh you might be able to like get them to overblock for three on a on a random wager spot and force them to overblock on a turn that you know that could kill you otherwise that's actually cool that's cool now i know i'm just gonna play against you and you're gonna do this to me and i'm just gonna look at you and be like why, why are you doing this yeah and then you're just gonna like you're gonna block it out just just enough and then i'm gonna be like oh you got me and then I get blown out <laughs> <laughs> okay let's uh move on and talk about the other mechanic of the set which is uh clash 
Clash is just uh, both players reveal the top card of the deck, and you're looking at the power on the card revealed, and you win the Clash if the card is higher power. What happens if it's a tie? Uh, they just both go back on top and there's no winner. Yeah, so, so Clash is interesting. I'm still new to the format, but they seem really powerful. Not necessarily um, so much for the effect, because some of them are quite are quite random. Like if you, if you win a Clash, I think you might get um, a small incremental piece of value. But generally that they're three and four card, uh, sorry, three and four defense cards. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit already, but there's a lot of two blocks in the set. And so anything that blocks for four is is just amazing probably definitely in high pick order and draft the clash cards that attack i think there's a cycle that attack for six they cost two they cost three yeah 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 cost two attack for six at red and block for three that's that that is very solid all round and they can give you clash benefit i guess something that came up from time to time is unfortunately as a warrior you're a little bit negative ev to try and clash and so one of them is the clash with agility and so blocking um you know in a dire spot for four is great but probably being neg ev on a clash battle and then giving them an agility token is quite gross um but yeah that's something that comes up probably a little trick that i didn't quite get to pull off but is interesting because i thought about it is um, there's some armor pieces that get better defense when you have a particular type of token. Each of the classes have them in Warrior, for example, can block for two if you have a Vigor and Agility. So one of the things that you could really gamble if you needed to get an extra block would be to block with the armor, block with the Clash card, win the Clash, create the token, and have the armor plus one defense if you win the clash so if you're extremely desperate and keen to have a gamble that's something that might be a spot that comes up but yeah i think probably probably like we talked about it before using the information off the reveal is quite important it's another thing to to try and um remember uh it's quite hard to do if you're you know in a high pressure situation but yeah that information for yourself and for your opponent is probably something to take note of. Yeah, that's fair. One note about the interaction you just said, just make sure in if you are going to do that play that you declare all of your blocks before you go to reveal your card. Clash cards, you do need to have set all of your blocks first and then you clash. You can't actually like block with a clash card, look at the top and then decide to block with more cards. You do have to do them all together. It's just like a side note, just uh, for people playing with the mechanics for the first time. Don't go and like reveal the top card the moment you put a clash card down. Just make sure those are the cards you want to block with first. I, I would say that the they've captured the the feel of um, that that sort of excitement and gambling through clash. It's it's a really cool cool mechanic. Um, <laughs> can feel a little bit you know all in a little bit and can really be make or break but yeah it's it's definitely exciting yeah it's a it's a nice way to add rng to the game that is impactful but like is controllable at the same time it's it's it's, it's i like this mechanic jay can't wait and i already know he's just excited to pitch stack his clash cards and then he'll know beforehand that he's gonna win the clash because he's memorized both of our decks <laughs> 
I don't think it's this format doesn't seem like it can do that 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 effectively. But you know what? In in draft, maybe that would be a thing I would I would try and play around. We'll see. We'll see. That'll be like way way in the future, Yuki. <laughs> okay. I guess we can move on to how is how relevant is like fatigue in this uh, format, like in sealed in particular, like did every game go to fatigue or you said it was going to be kind of like like cards are aggressive and like people are attacking each other a lot, but like how often did your games go to fatigue? I guess is a better question. It's, it's definitely a fatigue by damage. There's not a lot of reliance on, weapon so it's it's typically not full block out and come back with a hammer or anything like that there's just too many two blocks so a lot of people are just incentivized with those two blocks to just spend them on attack so you're, you're just trading and that's why the three blocks are, are just so so premium yeah so i think trying to probably run closer to 30 is probably where you want to be i think in my set i ran about 33 34 it's it it is a fine balancing act and i think in this format they've got it um, closer to where it needs to be than any other whereas by contrast heavy uh, sorry bright lights was extremely fatigue focused and um, you're just waiting for people to boost themselves to death and then other formats where it's just been completely aggro and and there's no block i think this is sort of right in that sweet spot where the deck building sort of choices are really matter and you want to be you want to be lean you can't just fill your deck with garbage two two blocks you need to have uh, a density of quality cards but um it, it can come down to that last card in deck as well i lost a game for locking for top eight where i had a 33 card deck and my opponent had a 30 card deck with a cracked bauble in it and i felt gutted in that it literally came down to the final cards i had no cards in deck and he only had a cracked bauble <laughs> No, it was extremely upsetting. But yeah, that's how close it is. So I think, yeah, it's it's just in that in that sweet spot. And so I think it's possible, like we talked about, with the right pull, an extreme one, or in draft, if you had an incredibly high density of three blocks and wanted to present like a forty card deck and, and, and have a hammer, it's 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 possible. But Generally speaking, in sealed, I'd recommend just trying to be as lean as possible. Maybe an extra card or two, as long as they were, you know, decent quality. Like a yellow three block, I think is definitely good quality and should be in your deck. A whole bunch of, you know, yellow filler, I think, is questionable. That's fair. One note though, like don't don't feel bad about a player playing one crack bauble against you. That's that's it's not even that bad. I lost to a guy who who had six baubles in their deck. <laughs> I guess at a arcane set that might be okay. It was, uh, it was um, Tales of Aria and um, Eric Lehrer. It's he's one of our locals, and uh, he just like pitched double bobble on me on one of the turns, and I'm like, "What's going on?" And then he just like proceeded to make a bunch of uh, embodiments of Earths and kill me early in the format. So that was an experience. <laughs> yeah, take take some getting over. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to equipment. Last week, Jay and I were, we kind of spent the whole episode just talking about the equipment and reviewing the equipment in the set. And one of the things that we picked up on that it seemed like a number of players had talked about, heard them talking about the format is how good the specialization hats are. I guess for people going to their first pre-release, do you feel like how important do you feel 
equipment is for evaluating your pool and deciding on a deck? Like, are you starting by looking at your equipment? Is that a huge factor? Or are you more interested in the agility cards? Or like, like how, how important is having, you know, a, a fairly full equipment suite in your in your sealed deck? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. Um, the, the thing to note in heavy hitters is that there's a lot more equipment. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's either two equipments per pack or at least one and a half. So yeah, um, putting those out in the decision making when you're evaluating your pools as to which here is obviously is obviously critical. It's as important just as ever, just like any other flesh and blood um, limited format, I guess. But the specializations are really powerful because a lot of them, um, I think, are temper block two, and starting on three extra life is just is a significant advantage. So um, yeah, I think I think equipment in general. Um, is is really strong the specializations especially they are good reasons to go into some of those heroes that are um, not not as played um, and the weapons um, especially the warrior ones and the mill hammer um, like so parry blade and hot streak are very 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 strong um, and kind of force you to towards that that um, hero choice as well I guess what I would say is that it's not everything. I had in my sealed pool like a strong KO pool and strong and slightly better armor, but I, I decided to go with go with Kasai on the fact that I had two more three blocks. It's kind of arguable and it's probably the jury's still out on that one. But I felt that it's it's probably just slightly more important to have better quality cards in general and, and probably better density of those things. So yeah, it's 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 really important, but it's probably not the the be all and end all. Yeah, that's it's gonna be a really tough spot of like trying to evaluate what's better, like three blocks, like having better blocks in your deck so you have a more consistent pool throughout, or like just having that extra equipment to be able to like produce more damage, like by playing a little bit more of a greedier deck. It's it's gonna be an interesting question for the set in overall because like. We're going to be able to draft this set and in those situations then like now you have to like look at it do i want the three block do i want the headpiece do i want like there's just yeah. so many more things to think about in this set yeah absolutely i think um it's definitely worth mentioning that you, you'll probably have access to sideboard equipment so for example you might have an equipment that um is a two block if your opponent has destroyed a vigor token this turn or you could um, change that with a simple blade break one. Um, so there's some good sideboarding options in the equipment slot, but um, for sealed, I found those two blocks where they're in the relevant matchup um, to be extremely powerful. Uh, that they really can be the difference. I think um, it's worth mentioning that the equipments that you block for one when you're behind on life, the format is extremely swingy. And so normally in Flesh and Blood, you would try and eke out um, a lot of value in your armor blocks, just leaving them right for critical junctures. Uh, I don't think you can afford to do that in this format. And so what you generally will just need to do is as soon as you get the opportunity where you're behind on life and you can present um, a block, one off those is take that opportunity, even if there's no on hits being presented. It, it's just that sort of format. I think the equipment that gives you plus two block if you have the two associated class tokens is very strong. 
and allows you to do a lot of skill expression where you are producing the two tokens setting up for a big turn and then you can do a two block in tempo and get in another single block if you happen to make those two tokens in a follow-up turn the combo is if you happen to get piece of armor that blocks for two dependent on the tokens that you have accompanied with the blade break pieces that produce those tokens so that you can have a, a sort of wombo combo turn where you sack the two pieces of, of blade break armor to create the two tokens and then have the two block off that um, piece of armor that's remaining so um, the equipment has got a lot of play to it yeah there's there's some really cool tricks that you can do with it yeah, and it's 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 always relevant, particularly with cards like um, down but not out as well. Yeah, I think exactly what we were talking about last week. You you I think you reinforced our points. Like it's it really I think it's it's playing as we've expected. Honestly, like those equipments that like get the vigor and the agility tokens. Um, I guess the question would be like, did you see them block for three? Like the mm. the ones where it gets the temper the the cycle that we're talking about right now like how often yeah. did it block for three it was really difficult you had to earn that i probably only did it once or weekend but you know koi did it against me at least once in one of our in one of our games i think that it's a really strong skill expression type of interaction that the the best players will enjoy getting the most edge out of it takes a lot of setup but if you're patient you can get there I do think KO is slightly stronger with that because you can, on demand, create might tokens. So you're just looking for the agility. That's probably an easy hero to get that off on. But it, it's, it comes up probably more than you think, but it's not, it's not free. You definitely do need to work towards that. I think we talked about this here, right? Where evaluating your pool? Or do you, yeah, was there think... something you want to talk about from this point? Yeah, I think probably one of the things that I noticed with this set is cards that help you from when you're behind. I personally find those to be, this is kind of a heuristic from other card games as well, where typically cards that um, get more powerful when you're ahead are not as powerful as the cards that help you come back from a losing position. And so cards like Adrenaline Rush are a good example of this, where you'll get the benefit if you're on lower life. The format is extremely swingy anyways, and then it's not very hard to manufacture a situation where you're on less life, get the benefit from, from the attack. So I find those to be quite powerful cards. But um, one card I wanted to talk about in particular was um, Down But Not Out, which is a rare, but you kind of you'll probably see it more than you would expect. It's a three for five at red, and it blocks for three, but it's got the three conditions on it, which check if you are behind in life, behind in equipment, and behind in tokens. So there's a significant amount of setup and cost associated um, with this, but if you if you have all of those three boxes ticked, the card gets plus three power and, and overpower, which is which is huge. And then also it has an on hit, which is you create three tokens. So the the ceiling of this card is extremely high. The floor of it is it's a block three. Um and it red can just be a three attack for five, which is not on rate, but it's not it's serviceable. Yeah, honestly it sounds great. A, a block three sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just stop there. Absolutely. 
I had this card in my sealed pool and my top, uh, sorry, my day two draft and my top eight. Maybe I'm probably biased to this card, but I found it to steal a significant number of games. I finished being, you know, behind on tempo and life. A lot of games just using this where they just couldn't block the overpower. Yeah, multiple games throughout throughout both days. And so I think this card is a bomb and something to look out for. But I guess the point that I'm making is it's a card that helps you from when you're behind. And I, I think those are something to, to just be aware of and, and consider. Takes a lot of setup, this card, but it's probably proportional to the payoff that you get. I quite like the micro games that you have to consider throughout the game to manufacture the situation because it, it yeah, um, there's a lot to take in for it. Yeah, it's it's extremely rewarding if you do pull it off. That's fair. That's fair. Actually, now that I think about it, I think a strategy is like if you are ahead, it might just be a good idea to like use up all of your blade break armor quickly, so then they can't actually use down but not out. That seems like a very easy way to like prevent that card from actually killing you. Yeah, if you use up all of your armor, then they can't. You can't. They can't have fewer equipment. So this card will never trigger, even if they can uh, meet all the other conditions. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to look out for because there's a certain amount of agency if you're, if you're ahead in a game. And so throwing away extraneous um, equipment, that you, you know, particularly the ones that um, you need to be on lower life if your opponent's on one, then it's never going to be useful. So you might as well throw it away and mitigate the risk of them having this bomb come out of nowhere. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Probably just one other thing to mention, I mean, it's pretty specific to this card, but a lot of the times my opponent played it against me, I actually took twice, and I had the Sheltered Cove, I think it's called, the headpiece, which you can at instant speed pay three to sack it to prevent two damage, and they would attack me with this card down but not out and have less equipment than me by one, and in response in the layer step, um, I can sacrifice the hat to be equal on equipment and then it turns off all of that ability so it becomes extremely anemic so i guess when you're playing with this card you also need to be aware of like your opponent's instant speed destruction abilities yeah you want to play around that and i guess yeah the other thing is um if you if you have go again on it you'll have to just weigh up is it worth attacking with it first with it turned on and ensuring you get the benefit or risking an attack as your first attack that's not down but not out and then blocking with the equipment and then turning off your ability on the second attack so yeah um it's quite a specific thing about the card but um it's a it's a prime example of cards that pull you back from the brink and yeah it's those types of things that come in clutch i think yeah honestly i didn't really like look at this card that that deeply until now but now that you're talking about it this card does seem to be like maybe like a the one of the most important rares in the set actually because everyone can play it and there's just like you're gonna see this card a lot right i think it's a bomb and i think you'll see it a lot and i think you'll see it at every color strip it's it's good in every color yeah I as agree. it's a block three on on this note of the cards that are good from when you're behind uh, i kind of picked up on coverage that rally the rear guard especially the red one was really really impressive and these end games against warriors where like you, you kind of talked about there's these like lose lose scenarios with the attack reactions and just sometimes having the option to block with the rally the rear guard and then activate it as an instant to discard as like a pseudo 
defense reaction, which are so rare in this set, was like really, really, really impressive. So yeah, that was like another example of these cards that are really good, like in those endgame scenarios when you're behind and one to look out for, I think. Yeah, and just to, to further cement that, I think reinforce the line, which is a rare, is A plus as well. Because it's, it's I think it's probably the only real four block that's a defense react in air quotes. There are the cycle of instant speed prevent two damage, um, and they create a, a token in class. But yeah, that it's very thin on the ground for um, defense reacts. Yeah, I think uh, reinforced line is basically the only defense reaction in this set, essentially. Okay, um, I guess those were all the points that we had prepared. Do you have anything else you wanted to add before we close out the episode? Uh, not really, other than just, you know, it's a, it's a great set, and I encourage everyone to go out and play the pre-releases. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Just experiment with some of the, the heroes there. I mean, I had a lot of fun, um, in one of the seals playing, playing KO. Uh, Brute is definitely not a class that I'm that familiar with, but I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I think the, the guys have hit it out of the park with this, this set, and, yeah, uh, I hope everyone has a lot of fun playing it in the pre-release. Fantastic. Congratulations again on the win. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing all your insight from the calling and the premiere with us. It's super interesting to hear from somebody who's actually had a chance to you know, play the set and, and get to know it quite or reasonably well, as well as you can in, in this amount of time. Before we, or as we sign off here, we usually kind of let people know where they can find us. Um, are you on social media at all? Or are you more kind of like private? Um, I'm pretty private. I've got Twitter. So I just need to look up the handle. That's how often I use it. But um, yeah, I can I can provide that and you can put that in the notes if you need to. Yeah. All right. Thank so you. yeah, for sure. So if anyone wants to follow Darren on Twitter, um, that will be in the show notes in your, or in, in the comments and you're welcome to take a look for that. But otherwise, um, that's going to wrap us up for this week. Good luck to everybody at your pre-releases and thanks for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, as always, um, you can reach out to Jay at J on Twitter. I'm at Yuki Lee Bender on Twitter. And we also have an email on the bobble at gmail.com. So if you want to send us any questions or feedback, um, we'd love to hear from you there. But until next time, oh, good one luck. One more thing, one more thing. Patreon shout out. Oh, right. We usually do it at the start. Yeah, so we've actually had quite a few people joining the Patreon and um, starting to post lists. Like some people have been doing drafts um, online and have been posting their 3.0 lists and, and talking about the format a whole bunch, which has been super, super interesting. So uh, thank you to everybody who's given us that support and participated in the Discord. And I'm you know, really excited to dive into that with everybody. Uh, and, and break open this format as we as we move into pre-release and then and then release as well. So thanks so much for all of our supporters. And if you are interested, you can find that at patreon.com slash on the bobble. Um, and if you're not able to give back to the show, that's okay too. Just you know, listening, being here, talking about the show, that that means a lot to us as well. So yeah, thanks to everybody on Patreon. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thanks for joining us, Darren. Or it could be Frustumba related. It could be CC related. And, and honestly, this is like a free <laughs> <Anything>. <laughs> Um, 
No, I think I think um, we've covered everything that I wanted to say. I think one of the main things was um, I, I haven't really been interviewed like that before at the calling, and um, I got a bit overexcited and then forgot to give a shout out. So this is um, a good opportunity where I made sure at the start I, I kind of singled out um, my teammates. So I feel that was probably one of the main things, and so I think they'll be happy with that. I did get called out <laughs> from my teammates for that. But, hey, uh, it's just all happening, and so, yeah, I just yeah, just forgot. No, that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. When you're getting interviewed, you're just like, before, before the interview, you're like, okay, I want to make sure I, like, make sure I mention my friends, and then <laughs> when the interview yeah. actually happens, you're just like, oh, they, they ask you a bunch of questions, you answer them, and they're like, okay, we're out of time, bye, and you're like, oh, <laughs> damn, I, I, didn't, I couldn't do any yeah. shout outs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I have definitely done this exact thing, and the other thing that's happened to me is as the number of people that I test with has gotten bigger and bigger, um, I've just like <laughs> forgotten some people. Like one time, like I had mostly oh, no. tested with Nia, and then I just forgot to like I mentioned like almost everybody but Nia, and he's like, oh, "You didn't no. mention my name." I'm like, "Oh no, I'm so sorry." Oh. Oh, <laughs> so no. uh, you're, you're you're not alone, and and not getting the chance to shout people out is infinitely better than like forgetting one in particular. Person. <laughs> Sorry, Nia, if you're listening. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, other than that, no, that's it. Okay, perfect, perfect. Okay, now we'll just uh, close the episode here then.